good morning. Might I say that you all sound just as beautiful as you look this morning. It was a good morning of worship up here. I, I, I don't know if you noticed, uh, you probably did, but Pastor Nathan pulled back from the microphone, and I suspect that's because your volume was overtaking ours, and we liked it. So very cool. We enjoyed worshiping you with this morning, and we've got one more song, so uh, we'll look forward to that at the end of the service this morning when we respond to what God says to us. I do want to bring one more thing to your attention that wasn't announced in the announcements, uh, and that is that we will be having another baptism uh, next Sunday. So, uh, yeah. We... And if you want something extra to be excited about, it's not one, but two baptisms. So we're excited about that, but we would love for it to be three or four or five. So if you're in the house this morning and, and you have accepted Jesus uh, or you feeling, you're feeling led to be baptized or feeling led to join us officially, formally as a church, we would love uh, to have you come and talk to us this morning. I should be out in the hallway, foyer, welcome, whatever you call that area out there. And uh, we'd love for you to come talk to us and to line that up. As we turn our attention to the Word of God this morning, let us go to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Father God, we thank you so much for your goodness and your grace to us. We thank you for the great love with which you have loved us, Lord, that you continue to pursue us. Lord, that you are a way maker, a promise keeper, that you never fail. That though our faith might falter, though it might fall short, though we might forget who we are in light of who you are, God, you never forget, you never fail. And God, we thank you for that. We pray that this morning as we look at what it means to be a people that are committed by faith, Lord, that you would inspire our hearts and minds, that you would draw us closer to yourself, and Lord, that you would lift us up in the power of your presence. God, speak to us this morning in Jesus' name, amen, amen. So faith is a fundamental part of life. Faith is a fundamental part of life. I actually had this discussion with uh, a, an, an unbelieving scholar friend of mine who said that faith was unnecessary, that, that faith was for the weak of mind and heart, which I, I'm okay with it. I, I just think that we tend to overestimate our own strength. I think that faith is, in fact, a fundamental part of life, and, and perhaps it's not in the, the, the religious sense that we often think of it as. I mean, there is a religious side to faith that, that we could talk about different systems of faith, right? We could talk about Christianity, we could talk about Islam, we could talk about Buddhism. There are systems of faith, the faith, if you would, our faith, your faith, my faith. But faith on a more basic level is necessary for everyday life to function. You, you had and demonstrated faith today. When you walked out to your car and inserted your key into the ignition and turned that key, that was in fact an act of faith. Or perhaps you're even more bougie than that and you just pushed a button from inside your house. And you pushed that button from inside your house and you had faith when you pushed that button or you turned the car that what? The car was going to start. Now, you may say to me, oh, that wasn't faith. I knew that that car was going to start. But did you? Did you? Really? You trusted that that car was, was going to start. And, the, and with the, 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 the special exception of a few engineers that we might have in the room right now, most of us have zero idea how an internal combustion engine works. Right? Someone else built that car, someone else designed that car, it's someone else's name on that car, and they put it together, and we in faith get in it, we turn the key, we push the button, we drive it down the road, and we trust that that car is going to get us from point A to point B safely. That is, in fact, an act of faith. Or how about this? Uh, many of you will probably go out to lunch when we are finished with our service this morning. And when you get to that restaurant, you're going to sit on the chair out in the kitchen area, right, or out in the, the dining area, and you are going to take a menu, and you are going to order from that menu 
with some person that you probably do not know, person that you have never met in your life, and you are going to order from them food that you are going to ingest then into your body. And that person is going to go back to another person that you don't know, and a person that you will never see, right? And you are going to trust that that person back there making minimum wage understands the complexities of cooking and salmonella and fully putting things together so that that food not only doesn't kill you when it comes out, but it looks and tastes like it's supposed to, right? Think about that when you go to Cracker Barrel this afternoon. You are demonstrating faith in the restaurant and the cooks and the servers that are working there. Or, or how about this, when we send our, school, our kids to school every day, we, we are demonstrating faith possibly in school bus drivers, the buses themselves. We are demonstrating faith in teachers and faculty and staff at those school systems that they are in fact going to do what they have said they are going to do and they are going to teach our children what they say they are going to teach our children and, and that, that we can trust them with our kids. Tell me that that is not an act of faith. I would go even more simplistic. Even this morning... When you walked into this very sanctuary, each of you demonstrated some element or modicum of faith when you came in. When you walked in and you sat down on these decades-old pews, you sat down on that pew, we came in, entered the building, we walked to our assigned seats perhaps where we've sat for years and years, We sat down and we had faith that these decade-old pews would support our weight and wouldn't send us sprawling onto the floor. But wait, it gets greater. Because not only did you sit on that pew, but you trusted that that pew was going to continue holding the weight as others sat with you. Now for some of us, that required more faith than others. But it was, in fact, an act of faith. Do you know what those pews are actually made of? It's not hardwood. How do I know? Because I've broken one. Not by my weight. Just for for clarification. I, I believe that faith is a fundamental part of life. That without it, it is impossible for us to survive. That we, in fact, have to live by faith. What is, what is up to us is what we are willing to put our faith in. What are we willing to trust and how much? But faith is not an optional part of life. And for the followers of Jesus Christ, for believers in God Almighty, faith is even more important. Because our faith isn't just in these physical things that we can see and we can calculate in our minds and, and adjust that faith. It is in a, an invisible God that we do not see. Faith is fundamental. In Hebrews chapter 11, go ahead and turn with me there. We're going to jump around again today and look at a, a few different passages. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to lay a foundation of this is what faith looks like and what faith is. And then we're going to look at a couple of stories from Jesus to establish what that means for our lives. We're going to establish the foundation, some fundamentals here of what faith is. And then we're going to talk about what faith looks like and means in our lives through the stories of Jesus. Hebrews Just verse 11, just verse 1. And it says this. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. I tried and tried and tried as I was formulating where I thought we should go for this message to avoid this one. But this, much like the Lord's Prayer, feels kind of foundational to the idea of what faith is because it clearly explains this is what faith is. Just lays it out there for us. Makes a clear, definitive statement. But if we were to read on, which we have done last year about this time, we were going through a, a series on Hebrews chapter 11 and we looked at the different characters that follow because that's, that's what the writer of Hebrews does is he, he makes this statement, this is what faith is, and then he says, and this is what the ancients were commended for, and then he goes through who's some of those ancients, these, these pillars of faith, these people historically who had to demonstrate faith and demonstrated the faithfulness of God through their actions. 
He makes this statement. So we got to understand, though, something, that, that this, this initial statement in Hebrews 11 cannot be understood outside of the context of everything that follows in Hebrews 11. Because we like to make it just about this. Like we, it would be great, looking at your notes, if I just stopped with the first half of this statement and said, faith is what we believe. Faith is what we believe. But if we look at Hebrews chapter 11 and we think about what comes after verse 1 and we think about the whole of Scripture, we have to understand something. That faith is what we believe, but it is also what we do. Faith is seen in what we believe and what we do. Brief example from an earlier illustration. right? You can say that you believe that that pew will hold your weight. But if you refuse to sit in it, do you really have faith? You can say all day that you believe that your car will get you where you're going, but if you never get in it and let it take you out of the driveway, do you really believe what you claim to believe? Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Faith is sure and certain belief and a trust that we have and hold to in our hearts and minds. It is, it is something that is otherworldly. It is ethereal. It is not something that we can put our hands around and we can hold and touch and see and feel and taste. We can't, we can't always validate it through evidences, physical evidences, clearly and empirically. The Revel Concise Bible Dictionary says that faith is belief, confidence, trust, reliance. In its most basic form, particularly from a spiritual perspective, in keeping with what is said here in Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is believing that God is who he said he is and will do what he said he'll do. Faith is believing that God is who he said he is and will do what he said he'll do. We see that here as we, if we were to go down and, and jump through all of these passages and all of these examples in Hebrews 11, we see all these people by faith doing certain things that they, they are able to do those things because they take God at his word. The one that, that starts it all off comes from Genesis chapter 15 verse 6 where it says that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Faith specifically in our instance is confidence and assurance about God and his promises. It is belief that God is who he said he is and will do what he said he'll do. And for you and I, our, our entrance into the family of God, our initiation into faith starts with a declaration of faith. In Romans 10.9, it tells us that if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's a declaration of our faith. It is uh, an external statement of what we believe internally. It's an expression of our understanding. In Ephesians 2.8-9, it says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. But it's, it's great that we believe and we understand that God's grace is there, and how do we accept that? By faith. We trust it. And for any of us that are in this room that have professed faith in Jesus who have had that come to Jesus moment, we should have a testimony, right? We, we should have that, that moment, that, that come to Jesus moment, if you will, where we can look back to that and say, well, that's when I came to faith. Now, I, I share this quite often, and, and I don't apologize for that, but my testimony revolves around the First Baptist Church of Elkhart, Indiana. And as I've said before, I'll say again, it started with me sitting, and we were actually talking about one of those old movies earlier today with some church members. We sat in there, and an evangelist came, and I remember watching the video and seeing the really bad graphics of the person in hell and being terrified, and again, ran to the safest place in the church, the bathroom. And I hid in my stall, and there in the stall, I prayed with all the faith I could as an eight-year-old child, and I asked Jesus to, to save me. 
Now, I didn't understand everything, but I understood the basic, under, the basic mechanics of salvation. That if I declared with my mouth that Jesus was Lord, that, that if I declared that I believed the promises of Jesus were true, if I declared that I believed that, Jesus, that, that God so loved the world that he sent Jesus, that those who believe would not perish but have everlasting life. If I believed that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, that I would, in fact, be saved. Now, again, I I had to believe something that I could not physically see other than with that really, really bad movie. There's there's no photographic evidence of Jesus on the cross. There's no no real-life movie. I know that there are movies that try to illustrate what we think it was, but there is no real-life movie of the actual real Jesus, historical footage of him dying on the cross. There there is no historical footage or images of, of him walking around amongst people. Sure, we have the written word of God. That's true. But again, it goes back to the beginning of what I just said, that faith is believing that God is who he said he is and will do what he said he'll do. What does all of our faith hinge upon? The word of God, it hinges upon us believing that God is good for his word. Which isn't the point of the sermon this morning, but it does highlight the foundational importance of God's written word. Faith is a sure and certain belief and trust that we have and hold to in our hearts. But in order for faith to be effective... In order for it to come to fulfillment, it must move us to appropriate action. Faith can't just be an understanding. It it can't just be a cognitive knowledge that we hold in our heads. If it does not move our hands and our feet, it is ineffective. As we're going to see in a moment, James says that it's in fact dead. It's useless. Now, we're... Where is the writer of Hebrews coming from when he makes this declaration of faith? One of the problems with how we, we read the Bible and how we often do sermons is we have these nice little numbering things that show us where different things are. And it gives us addresses, if you will, of where passages are so it makes it easy to find them. But what it also does for us is it makes it really easy for us to dichotomize and subdivide scripture. To pull things out of context, to proof text. And with that, we can make Scripture say a great many things that it does not actually say. So where, where does this, what is the foundation for the writer of Hebrews of where he goes in Hebrews 11? What is it that's inspired him to write what he's writing? When well, Hebrews 10, verse 38, it says this. But my righteous one will live by faith. And where does he get that from? We go back in the Old Testament to Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. There's a verse that we probably know of. We may not know where it is in the Bible, but it's a very often uh, quoted verse. And it says something to the effect of, The just, or the righteous, shall live by faith. I think that's important. Because that explains then where, where the writer of Hebrews is going with this statement in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. He's not simply making a a, a statement of fact. This isn't just something that you are supposed to hold to in your heart and mind. There is a sense where that is true, but it is to move beyond that. Why? Because he's trying to define for us not just what faith is in our hearts and minds, but what it looks like when it is applied in our lives. Why? Because the just don't just believe by faith. The just shall live by faith. It's an active thing. Faith is an active thing. It is not just an understanding internal thing. It is. It is an internal understanding. But it is a confidence that leads to external action. Faith is an internal understanding that leads to external action. If we go back to the Revel Concise Bible Dictionary to their definition of faith, it starts by saying that it is belief confidence, trust, and reliance. But then it continues on, saying, in the Bible, religious faith is, quote, a life-shaping attitude towards God. Faith is, again, I will say, a life-shaping attitude towards God. 
The person with faith considers God's revelation of himself and of truth to be certain and sure. The person with faith then responds to God with trust, with love, and with obedience. I can't help but go back to the song that, that I seem to mention every time we, we talk about faith because Sunday school beat it into me. Where it, we, we sang, obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. Doing exactly what the Lord commands and doing it faithfully. Action is the key. Do it immediately and joy you will receive. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. I think we get this twisted. And I don't just think, I know. Having been through the academic systems, I understand how we get this twisted. We, we like to make faith about knowing the right answers, doing the right things. We, we like to make faith about being able to win the arguments with our opponents out in the world. We like faith to be about, about things that we can just store in our hearts and minds. And that's great. And it is that to an effect. And you know why we do that? Because it's easy. It doesn't cost us anything. Well, it cost me something. Like if you go to college, it does cost you something. But, but storing it and, and studying the Bible other than some time, it doesn't cost you anything. H having, having debate with words doesn't really cost me anything. But when I have to actually alter my life, when it goes from just an understanding that I have in my head and information that I collate and keep in a safe place to something that actually is meant to influence and impact and fundamentally shift the way that I live my life, well, that's when, as in the church parlance, we say, we've gone from preaching to meddling. Let me just say this as a quick aside as we're here. If you listen to a preacher who does not begin meddling, they are not a good preacher. And I believe that with all my heart. Because faith is not something that we just store. It's not just about having all the right knowledge, but living the life that God has called us to. And James, he uses some pretty strong words about this. And James says in James 2, verses 14 and following, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith, but has no deeds, right? This is exactly what we've just been talking about, having all the understanding in our hearts and minds. He says, what good is that? What good is it if you have all the understanding and you have, you have all this truth packed away and you get it all and it makes sense and you can systematize it and you can write books about it and you can read books about it and you can have conversation and discourse about it. What good is it if you say you have faith, but you have no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace and keep warm and be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is that? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Lest we miss it, the question is, what good is faith that does not have accompanying actions? And James' answer is, it is utterly worthless and rotten. It is lifeless and dead. But I think it's important that we carry on just a little bit here and read further what James says. Because James goes from meddling to picking a fight. But someone will say, he says in verse 18, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without your deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the devil believes that and shudders. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteousness for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. It is true. And this is, this is something where we, we kind of get into some cognitive dissonance. We get into a, a place where 
it feels like the scriptures are bumping up against each other a little bit, right? Because in Galatians, Paul tells us that we are saved by grace through faith alone, not by works so that no one can boast, right? That's what he says. And if, if he stopped there, it is true that the two things would be at odds with one another. Now note that James does not say, never does James say, that faith is not an understanding that we have internally. He doesn't say that it's not this thing that we hold in our hearts and minds. He never says that. All he says is that if that faith that we have doesn't lead to actions, that it is useless. Well, interestingly enough, if we were to go back to Ephesians, I think I just said Galatians, I meant Ephesians. If we go back to Ephesians, we see that saving faith, even in that instance, is meant to move beyond just what's in our mind to what we do. Because the writer, Paul, as he writes Ephesians, as he gets to verse 10 of chapter 2, he says that we were saved, the salvation that we have by grace through faith, was that we might be appointed or accomplish the good works that God created us for from the foundations of the earth. See, the fact is there is no argument. We just need to complete the thought. Yes, salvation comes through faith in God alone. Our salvation is from what God has done for us. But what God has done for us should lead to what God desires to do in and through us. It can't stop with the one, one portion. It is, it is a both and thing. It is two sides of the same coin. Yes, faith is believing and trusting in the work of God alone for our salvation. But faith is also allowing that to so move us that it fundamentally changes who we are and how we live. And we could spend all day looking at passages talking about how the truth of Jesus Christ and that faith should fundamentally influence and impact our identity. We are not the same. We are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. I want to note that in our vision statement, it says that we are committed by faith. We are committed by faith. I want everybody to say that with me. We are committed by faith. That's important because we get it twisted and sometimes we become committed to faith. We aren't just committed to believing the right things. But committed to doing the right things and being the people that God has made us to be. We, we are committed to living by faith. Following his lead. So yeah, faith is what we believe, but it is also what we do. Now how do, how do we define faith? What does faith look like? Well, I think we've got plenty of, of examples for scripture, and I really struggled with it, where exactly to go with this. There's a lot of places in the Bible, in the Gospels particularly, where Jesus says things and makes declarations about people's faith. When, when, the, when the ten lepers are healed, right, Jesus says, hey, go show yourself to the, to the priest and you're, you're going to be healed. And as they're on their way, right, the one of them realizes that they've been healed and the other nine just keep on walking. That one guy turns around, what does he do? He goes back to Jesus and he says, hey, I'm healed, thank you. And Jesus says, rise and go, your faith has made you well. Or I like the story where the four friends come and they've got their, their lame friend and they realize that they can't get in. The house is packed, right? So they climb up on the roof and they rip this dude's roof off and they lower their friend down in, on the floor in front of Jesus. And what does it say in the passage? Whose faith does it recognize? It says, and Jesus, seeing their friend's faith, says, your sins are forgiven you and heals him. Because of his friend's faith. I mean, there's actually a whole different thing about when we don't have faith, we need each other's faith to, to help carry us forward. We need to be committed by faith to the Father God, to Jesus, but also to one another. But, but I decided to go a different direction that this morning. Because there's one example in the Gospels where Jesus doesn't just comment on a person's faith, but looks at the person and says, that is great faith. Turn with me to, he, to Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 5. Matthew 8, starting in verse 5. And it says this, Matthew 8, 5 through 10. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, 
A centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? And the centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their place at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done just as you have believed it would. And his servant was healed in that moment. This is, this is a crazy statement. This is a crazy story for a lot of reasons. But it, it reveals to us, it gives us a small little picture, and it's actually very simple, and it reveals to us what great faith looks like. And it starts with something that's foundational to all of our faith. That great faith starts with recognizing the greatness of God. Great faith starts with recognizing the greatness of God. You know, Michaela is at school at Grace College, and she's in this theology class. And we had a, a conversation the other day, and, and I kind of, I had a revelation as we were talking back and forth. Because she's talking to me about the arguments that are happening in her class. And I'll, I'll be full revelatory. It is about women in ministry. And it was interesting to me, as I'm listening to the arguments, how man-centric they are. Now, I don't, I don't, by that, I don't mean male-centric. That, that is absolutely true. But they're talking about the fundamental nature of referring to humanity as man or mankind. And as I read these, these responses, it, it struck me how in love with ourselves we are. How self-important we are as humanity. I don't just mean you. I don't mean just me. I mean us as people. How, how much we think that we truly influence and force God's hand and how central we think we are to what God is, will, or has to do. And I think we make that mistake often, whether it's in, in a Bible college class where we're talking about a, a belief that we have, or whether it's in our own lives, we make a mistake when we put ourselves on the throne and we make our wants, our needs, our desires, and our priorities central to God's will. As if God is just waiting around to do what we ask him to do. As if the faith, and if you think about it, in that sense, our faith is not only not in God but in us, but we think that God's faith needs to be in us. Not just that he needs to trust us to do what we're doing, but he needs to follow our plan, our process, our procedure, to adapt and adjust to our perspective. Well, great faith, though, must be rooted not just in what we hope God can do for, through, or in us, but in who God is. That, is that not the problem that the first century Israelites made? That their issue was all about them. Their issue was all about the greatness of their king, kingdom. The great, the, their issue was, for them, their faith was all about their own political greatness and, and the rise of their people. Sure, there were senses where they understood the promises of God, but only in as much as it benefited them. Probably what leads Jesus to eventually say, hey, I've not seen this kind of faith in all of Israel, because he hadn't. All these people wanted Jesus to acquiesce and come in line with their thoughts. But great faith must be rooted not just in what we hope God can do for, through, or in us, but in who God is. Now we see this odd example with this centurion, and it really would have been an odd example. Hearing this conversation in the first century as a first century Jewish audience would not only have been odd, it would have been downright offensive. Here we have this, this symbol, the, the, the height of the symbol of imperial occupation and power, this Roman centurion. Now in truth, centurions were actually men of great faith. 
Whether we want to believe it or know it or not, the, the Romans were actually people of incredible faith. That's why every time they would, they would conquer a new kingdom, for, for good measure, they would build a temple to that God. That's why they, you, you hear Paul talk about, we've got this altar to the unknown God, because they didn't want to miss any. Now, specifically, the centurions were, were men of great faith. They, they, they had faith in their commanders and their comrades. They had faith in the divine emperor, believing that the emperor was a living God. They had faith in the greatness of the Roman Empire. And perhaps they had a faith in, in one, any one of a number of gods of war, whether it be Mars or Ares. Centurions were, in fact, men of great faith in the spiritual sense. But centurions were also men of great power and importance. One commentator says, centurions were the military backbone throughout the Roman Empire, maintaining discipline and executing orders. They were military men with at least 100 troops under them. And usually they had a great territory they were tasked with keeping in line. And centurions were not well-liked or respected by the populace. Because the centurions believed their own press and often used their power for their own benefit. They were feared and obeyed, but they weren't the type of people you hoped or expected to have a warm come-to-Jesus moment. But here it is, this man that recognizes, that, that represents the enemy of God's people, the Roman Empire, the evil empire, and here, this man comes to Jesus. Now, notice, notice how the discussion between the centurion and Jesus starts. Because it's important to the discussion. If we go back to verse 5, it tells us that the, Jesus enters Capernaum, and immediately the centurion comes to him, and he asks for help. And, and how in the passage does the centurion begin? Lord. The very first thing the centurion does in the conversation is, is recognize the authority of Jesus. Now him saying, Lord, this is no small thing. You understand that the, the Romans 10 passage where Paul says that we need to declare that Jesus is Lord is a riff on a first century uh, rite of passage for Roman citizens that they had to declare as an act of worship that Caesar is Lord. So for this centurion to come to Jesus and say, hey Lord, this is not just loose words. It's not like you and I, where it's just part of our vernacular as, for, as Christians in these days. In this sense, the centurion is actually putting himself a little bit at risk by declaring that anyone is Lord other than Caesar. You realize that's why they killed Paul, right? Here he comes and he says, Lord, he recognizes the lordship of Christ. He recognizes the authority of Jesus which is the foundational element of faith. And it's only because he recognizes the authority of Jesus and from where Jesus comes that he believes Jesus can do what he needs. Sure, he'd probably heard the rumors. But he has to believe that they're true. And he has to believe that there's something behind this Jesus of Nazareth, that, that, that the press, that the stories, that the rumors point to something greater and more important. But notice what the foundational element is. It's trust in Jesus. It's not just the outcome. That is part of it. And it's something that you can't remove from the equation. But the foundational part is trust in Jesus, not in what Jesus can do for him. Faith is less about the desired outcome than the recognition and trust in the one with the authority and ability to bring it about. Faith is less about the desired outcome than the recognition and trust in the one with the authority and ability to bring it out. Being committed by faith then means recognizing the authority and greatness of King Jesus. Being committed by faith means submitting ourselves to his rule and reign. If we go back to last week, it means that those words, thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that as we pray those, that those are not just formalities, that they're not just words that just flow off our tongue because they're written somewhere else. They're not just something, a hoop that we jump through, but they are the foundational truth of our lives, that, that because we, are, we believe and because our trust and our hope is in Jesus and God Almighty, that we will do whatever he has asked us to do. 
Great faith will lead us to keep walking forward in life, trusting God to deliver on his word even when we can't see, hear, or feel his presence. My favorite thing about this story is how it plays out. Because the man comes and he says, hey, Lord, I've got a sick servant at home. Can you do something for me? And Jesus asks a question. Well, do you want me to come and heal him? Now, there are, there's all kinds of different opinions as to whether or not Jesus is being sarcastic because of ceremonial laws, of whether Jesus is being literal and, and being gracious, or, and I really don't care. It really is inconsequential because the question remains the same. Well, do you want me to come and heal him? And the centurion says, hey, you know what? No, that's not necessary. That's not necessary because I'm really not worthy. Which actually points back to the lordship thing beginning, doesn't it? Like, hey, you can't come. Please don't. Like, it's not necessary. You don't. If it stopped there, it would have been enough, right? You want me to come and heal your servant? No, not necessary. Now, I understand how authority works. And remember, I just declared to you, Lord, all you have to do is say the word, Lord. You just say the word. I know how authority works because I, I command my servants and, and I say to the one, go, and he goes. And I command the other to come and he comes. And I tell the other, do this, and he does it. And so, Lord, I understand how authority works. And I know that if you just say the word, my servant will be healed. And Jesus says, whoa, I have not seen such great faith in all of Israel. Go, it's been done for you, as you say. And what does the, what does the, the centurion do? He gets to step in. You know what's great about that? Is the centurion walks away with no assurance physically, no evidence in front of his eyes, nothing that he's seen that would convince him that Jesus has done what he said. But what he believed in his heart moved his feet. And I think there's a truth for us that often for us, that's how faith works. That we understand that Jesus is in fact Lord. That he's the authority. And if he says go, we go. And if he says come, we come. And if he says it needs to be done, it gets done. And we do so. That we start stepping, not knowing what's going to happen. Not, not with a, an empirical certainty of what's happening, but trusting with certainty in our minds. Because we know not the outcome, but the one who said the outcome was set. So we walk, even though we don't know. We walk even though we haven't seen. Jesus looks at this, and even Jesus notes the greatness of this man's faith. I have not found this great of faith in all of Israel, which is, again, insulting to those people of faith. Because notice who Jesus says it to. Jesus doesn't look at the centurion and say, man, you've got amazing faith. I haven't seen great faith in even my people. No, Jesus turns to the people of faith and he says, look, y'all could learn something here. I haven't seen great faith in all of you. Y'all don't get it. He does. Y'all don't know what faith is. He These are the people of faith. These are the people of promise. These are the people with God's word. And Jesus says, you guys don't get it. Sure, you have the understanding in your heads. But it, do, it doesn't move your hearts. It doesn't move your bodies. It doesn't, it doesn't motivate you the way that you live. Being committed by faith then means that we're willing to walk on. Even in difficulty and uncertainty. Because we understand the greatness of our God and King. And we trust his word for to and in us. Do we trust the word of God? If we're committed by faith, then we're going to understand what the word says and we're going to do what it says. Who we are, what we've done, and where we're from do not make or break the greatness of our faith. We see that in the story of the centurion as well. We often make the mistake of thinking that, that faith, faith only comes to the right kind of people. Well, I'm not, I'm not the faith kind of person. Look at me. Really? You, you aren't good enough. Like if the Lord can save me, the Lord can save you. What is the right kind of person anyways? Really? You know you, right? You know who you really are in your heart and mind. And we all know that we're not as good as we often make ourselves out to be. So who are we to create categories and and, and and definitive lines where this person can be? How do we even get to that point? But the fact is it's been there forever. But faith isn't about me. Faith isn't about you. Faith is about Jesus. 
Faith is about Almighty God and, the and how he is able to do the impossible. Now, Jesus goes on. I don't want to miss this, and I'm trying to move quickly here. In verses 11 through 12, Jesus says, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west. That he's talking about foreigners. He's talking about Gentiles. He's talking about outsiders. Many people are going to come from outside of our borders, and they're going to have a seat at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there is, will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus issues this warning that we can have all the advantages in the world. We, we can be from a good Christian family. We can go to a Bible-preaching church. We can grow up in Sunday school. We can grow up going to children's church and youth group. We can participate in mission trips and, and do all kinds of God's work in the world. We can do these things and have a clear path into the kingdom and still miss the point. Ultimately, what, makes, what matters most is not who we are, where we're from, who our family is, etc., but do we know Jesus? Do we put our trust and hope in God Almighty? And are we seeking his guidance? And are we doing our best to follow his lead for our lives? Because great faith starts with recognizing the greatness of God. Great faith recognizes, uh, starts by, by putting our trust in Jesus and following his will for our lives. One more passage. Turn with me quickly to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew 17, verses 14 through 20, and it says this. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water, and I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of the boy, and he was healed at that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, Because you have so little faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. The smallest seeds of faith can grow into incredible movements. Jesus compares the mustard seed and the mountain. We all know what the mountain is, right? The, this massive stone structure. It is a bedrock. It is immovable outside of the act of God. And we understand what a mountain is. Well, right here, this Kent Wagner gave me this. It's a little pin. And in the center of this pin, you cannot see it almost certainly, is a mustard seed. And Jesus says, you want to know what it takes to make a massive difference. You want to know how much faith it takes to really make a difference in your life and in the world? It doesn't take a mountain of faith. It doesn't take a stack of faith. It doesn't take this, this monumental building or edifice to bring about faith. You know what it takes? It takes a mustard seed. It doesn't take a lot. And you know what, if you're like me, sometimes we look at the situation around us, we look at the reality of life, we look at the struggles we're facing, we look at the truth of who we are and, and, and the reality of where we've come from and we see mountains and we think about our situations and we say to God, you know what God, I just don't have much faith. We're much like the, the man who comes to Jesus and says, hey, hey Lord, will you, if you're willing, you can heal my son. And he says, what do you mean if I'm willing? I, can I heal? Yeah, I can heal him. And, and the, the man says, Lord, I believe, only help my unbelief. And many times that is where my faith is. I believe, but I'm struggling to believe. Sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? But anybody else in the room that would say, hey, I've been there. I've been to that address where I've said, Lord, I believe, but I, I'm struggling to believe. I got a little bit, I got a little bit, and I'm holding on to that with all I've got, Lord, but this is all I've got right now. Can you use it? Lord, this is all I've got. Can you use me? And Jesus says, yep, that's all it takes. Come to me with the little that you have, and it's more than enough. Nothing will be impossible for us because the Almighty God lives and works in and through us. 
And I want us to note that, that Jesus comes down from a mountain. They've had this come to Jesus moment, right? They've just come down, and Jesus in his inner three. So the, just context, the disciples that have tried to cast out the demon are the nine minus the inner three. Because if we go back to the preceding passage, we see that Jesus, Peter, John, and James have just been up on the Mount of Transfiguration. They've had this amazing moment where Jesus has given incredible evidence for faith. And he comes down, and the other nine disciples couldn't handle this demon. And Jesus chides them for their lack of faith. When Jesus says to these people, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? He is not talking to quote unquote sinning unbelievers. He's talking to his people. And I, I think that there are times where where we, we struggle as well. We, we lose the source of our authority. We make it about ourselves and, and our own greatness. And we know we've done it before, so we think we can stand on our own two feet. And we realize very quickly that without Jesus, we're nothing. And we are the perverse and unbelieving generation. We like to say they're out there, but sometimes, if we're honest, it's right here. It's you and it's me. But I don't want us to focus on the unbelief of the disciples. You know what I want us to focus on? The faithfulness of Jesus. Because Jesus models what he says about if you have just the tiniest bit of faith, I won't fail you. The disciples' faith faltered. They fell short. But Jesus still came through in the clutch. And this is what I want us to end on today, that we will be committed by faith to following Jesus, to doing what he's asked us to do. We will believe in our hearts and our minds, and we will do our best to act accordingly. But we will fall short, and we will have times where faith is hard to come by. But here's the good news. Even when we have no faith or very little faith, God will still be faithful. Jesus will never fail us. God will never fail I wish that any of the Gospels would have clarified what their lack of faith was because then we could avoid it, but it doesn't because the point isn't their lack of faith but the faithfulness of God Almighty. When we can believe in nothing else, may we continue to reach out to and believe in Jesus. May we continue to, to hold on to that sure and certain hope that what we can't see is still real, that what we can see, we can't see is still coming, not because of who we are, of what we've done, or how great we are, but because of who God is, and because of what God has said. May we be committed by faith, to faithfully following, to faithfully becoming, to faithfully assessing the truth of our lives, and seeing the areas where we need to adapt and adjust the patterns, and perspectives that are guiding us. May we continue to look to the great God that we serve and follow. May we continue to hold to our faith in Jesus, small though it may be. And may we watch as God continues to move in marvelous and miraculous ways to do that which we thought was impossible in, through, and for us in accordance with his will and the promise of his word. May we be a people that are committed by faith. Father God, I thank you so much for your goodness and grace and the truth of your word. Lord, we know that faith is the victory, not because of anything in us, but because that faith points us to the light of life, Jesus Christ. And our faith is in Almighty God, for whom nothing is impossible, understanding that no word of God shall fail. Lord, may we trust in you. May we hold to you with all that we have. May we recognize your greatness and your glory. Jesus, work and move in our lives. Draw us to deeper faith in you and continue to prove yourself faithful as we follow you as you lead. In Jesus' name, amen.